It's wonderful to see everybody here tonight on this nice, brisk evening. <laughs> uh, we're going to start off by hearing from Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. We have a lot of trash, and it would be really nice if we had something really good to do with that trash, wouldn't it? Well, some researchers at Rice University have a new idea of what we can do with it. You know, take it, that trash that's not that great, not that useful, put it in a special machine, and turn it into something really amazing, right? You know? This is kind of like uh, Captain America, you know? Going to the machine and then boom, all of a sudden something amazing, right? And so they're actually making something that is really, really useful and something that we need more of. This is something that maybe you've heard about, maybe you haven't. It's called graphene. I don't know if any of you have heard that. Well, we've actually talked a lot about graphene because it can do some really amazing things. It is a one-layer uh, version of carbon atoms. And they make this structure that looks kind of like uh, chicken wire, like this. And um, when they're in this formation, they are amazingly strong and they have special conductivity properties and they are good for a lot of different things. So how in the world do they make the graphene from trash? Well remember trash, I'm talking about things like banana pills, even uh, old tires or plastic, all of those trash items actually have a lot of carbon in them. And so they have a new way to pull the carbon out. If you look at this picture here, you can see this is their little device, and they're zapping their sample in there. I don't know if this one's trash or not. <laughs> uh, but whatever it is, it's got a lot of carbon in it, and they uh, zap it with a really high voltage. And with that high voltage, the temperature shoots up really fast to around 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Super, super hot. And at that point, all of the carbon-to-carbon -carbon bonds and carbon to pretty much everything else all break. And as it cools, the carbon forms into graphene sheets. You know, this isn't graphene nanotubes or something you'd use to make a wire. This is little sheets of graphene, which is actually a really useful version of this. And uh, so the next big piece of this process is figuring out how to mass produce it. They're setting up a system right now to be able to generate a kilogram of graphene a day. And you know that doesn't sound like that much, but you got to remember, before now, we were talking about a picogram of graphene a day. That's 10 to the minus 12, right? One trillionth of a milligram around there. So teensy, teensy. You think about it, we make all this graphene, but it's teensy tiny bit, and it's really light. So a kilogram of graphene would be a lot of graphene, and they can scale this up. Now, uh, there are a lot of different things that you can use graphene in that are really, really neat. Things that we've been talking about how we could use graphene, but it's too expensive. Now, this might actually open up some of the doors. One good example is uh, making concrete stronger. If you put 0.02% graphene in your concrete, mix it up real good, that concrete will end up being 35% stronger, which means you could use 35% less concrete to do the exact same job. And that adds up really fast. That could actually help save the environment right there, couldn't it? Uh, but also that trash that would have been, you know, turning into uh, all the CO2 and the methane, everything going into the air and being wasted, could now be used to make a product that would be more valuable, wouldn't it? Another really cool idea that they have is to use coal. Coal is something that we've traditionally burned to make energy, but coal is very high in carbon. It has a lot of carbon in it. So this process might work really well for turning coal into graphene. And coal right now is about a thousand times cheaper than graphene is. So that could dramatically change the cost if they can make this system uh, run economically and efficiently. And so uh, that's what they're, they're working on, you know. I was thinking 
if that machine can turn trash into something super, what could it do to me? <laughs> right? Oh, no, no. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? And that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. All right. Well, I'm really inspired tonight thinking about the science fair that is coming up. And we've been talking a lot about it. And Dr. Billings has been giving us a lot of things that we can do to really do that science process. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me is how science discoveries build upon knowledge that's already been found. And one of the things we've been taught as well is that if you don't know the things that have already been found, then you're not out on the leading edge. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about somebody who built on a discovery of someone else and made a discovery for themselves through a science experiment. Now, of course, when you're doing a science project, you know, you need to come up with a, a hypothesis or a question or a theory, you know, like, the dry, I think the dryer makes my clothes shrink. Turns out it was just the fridge. <laughs> no, okay. Um, a real question, okay. If you didn't get that, bless you. Okay, <clears throat> but no. Uh, our story starts out with a discovery that was amazing, and it was by Sir Isaac Newton. And this was the discovery of the prism and the light going through the prism from the sun, that white light, and he showed everyone that he could split that white light into those amazing colors. And then he took it even further, and he took another prism. He was able to take the, the rainbow of colors, put them back together through another prism, and put white light out on the other side. So he proved everyone that these colors were within that light coming from the sun. Well, someone else came after him named William Herschel, and he was blown away by this discovery that Sir Isaac Newton had made, and he had an idea, a theory that he had as he looked at this and as he learned about it, and that was, so you have light coming from the sun, but the sun sends something else, and that is the energy or the heat. You get light and heat from the sun, so how is that heat split within that rainbow of colors. Is it split evenly? Well, he theorized that it would be split differently. So different colors, would they be different temperatures? Would some be warmer than the other? So he did an experiment. And he recreated this splitting of the colors. So he got a prism, and he split the sunlight into the spectrum from red, orange, yellow, green, to the blue, to the violet. Or for Isaac Newton, he had uh, indigo in between blue and violet. He really, he, he wanted seven. And so he put indigo in there. And frankly, if you, if you invent something like this or discover something like this before you're 26 and you also invent calculus, no one can really argue. So <laughs> there are seven <laughs> colors. Um, but he did that. And then he took these thermometers and he stuck the ends in the colors. And he colored the ends of the thermometers black so they would absorb more of the temperature of the heat. And he put one, and this was another good idea, he put one outside of the light to get the room temperature. He called it his control thermometer. So he's getting a lot of data. He's comparing all the colors and the room temperature, which he stuck right outside in the dark. And he was right. The colors were different temperatures. And he found, in fact, that on one end, where the violet, the blue, they were cooler. And as you went towards the red, it got warmer. So a very interesting discovery that he found. And then something happened. He looked at the thermometer that was in the dark. And it was hotter than all the others. Do, 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 do. Uh, that's pretty strange. And he, he did more tests. And it was right outside of the red in the dark was hotter. And he theorized that this was something, some other ray, beam of light coming from the sun that was not seen by our eyes. Um, and basically, and he, what he called it was light that is unfit for vision. Sometimes I feel like I'm not fit for vision, but <laughs> this was something that he could see on his thermometer something was happening. Well, what he had just discovered was opening up a whole new world of the spectrum of light energy that is outside of what we can see. We can see the rainbow of colors from red all the way to violet. But what we would learn later is that light travels in waves. And like waves, like if you're on, on a floaty and the wave comes by, you go up, you go down. Another wave comes by, you go up, you go down. Well, those two waves, between those two waves is the wavelength. And the wavelength of light varies 
And depending on that wavelength, we identify as different colors. Different colors are different wavelengths of light. Blue is different than red. And in fact, if you start the violet, the wavelength is shorter, and you go towards the red, the wavelength gets longer. But then what if you make the wavelength a little bit longer than red? It goes past red into what we now call infrared. And infra means basically under. It's past red, out of our sight, but it's still there. And he didn't call it that at the time, but this would open up and, of course, past infrared, if you go even further on that wavelength, there are more wavelengths. And on the other side, on violet, you go above violet, you get ultraviolet. You go past that and there's more. But these are wavelengths we can't see with the human eye. But this infrared would end up being used in so many ways. And in fact, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm actually glowing tonight. In fact, we're all glowing because we are giving off infrared light. The energy, if, if you could see with infrared, and they have cameras that can do this, you would see glowing off of me in the places that are most hot. And if we look at this picture, here's an infrared photo of someone pouring tea. And you can see the parts that are more hot are glowing. And infrared is much more tied to heat than some of the other um, waves, or uh, basically the patterns of the wavelength. This is really cool, though. Um, so if you look at this picture, this is a photo of a guy with his arm under a garbage bag. And then we look at it on the infrared camera, and we can see right through the bag his hand. And if you look, it's interesting. We can see through that bag, but guess what we can't see through? If you look at his eyes, he's wearing glasses, and then the glass stops the infrared from going through. So it's, it's different than some of the light that we're used to with, that we can see with our vision. So this discovery, one of the, those things where somebody found a breakthrough, discovered something, and then someone else came, and through that knowledge someone else found, they were able to find something else. And it's so often that that's how it works. So what things will you discover with your questions? Well, you never know unless you ask. Thank you. And now, introducing Dr. Roger Billings. Excuse me just a minute, guys. Apologies here. You hear this? Hi. Hi. We're starting. Where are you? I'm right here. Are you on an alien planet? I am. She's on an alien planet. Can you see her? Uh -huh. Hmm. In the dark. You guys have different wavelengths on your planet, don't you? <laughs> We're, we're ready to go. You're not here? <laughs> I'm not. Oh, gee. This proves she is an alien. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, do you mind hanging on for just a minute? No. Okay. Uh, she's not going to be able to be here tonight, but she is on this picture here. <laughs> Looks pretty good, too. Hmm. Can you see me? I can. Okay. Um <clears throat> Peje has a question that she'd like to ask everybody tonight. What's your question? <laughs> you want to know more about light? That yeah. seems only fair. Okay, are you watching tonight? I am. Well, that's good. <laughs> She's gone. All right, well, you have a nice trip. I want you to know back here on planet Earth, in Chief's country, <laughs> we're missing you, okay? So have a nice trip. All right, say hi to everybody. All right, good. Hi, everybody. We miss you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. It's nice to know that she's watching. And I was afraid she wasn't. I just wanted to confirm that. <clears throat> I don't think she was. <laughs> she's going to get dropped from the mentoring program, isn't she? Because she's not watching. Okay, so 
We have some really amazing students in the Sellis Academy. Uh, extremely talented, even famous people. Um, New York, ballet, right? We've got students that are amazing athletes, really outstanding people. And so what I'd like you to do tonight while we're getting started here is if you would just send in to us, you know how you send messages? Send in a message telling us what you do that's special. All right, now well, there's, a, there's quite a few of you, so uh, we won't get through all these tonight, but it'd be kind of fun to see the really outstanding, talented people that we have. And I want you to know that I, I've decided to be talented too. <laughs> that wasn't funny. <laughs> no, actually, uh, I'm a musician now. I've taken up the violin. And you say, well, yeah, a lot of people play the violin. Well, we, we have some very good violin players in our student body. But I'm different than the other violin players because I have mastered the very rare technology and capability of playing little violins. <laughs> I want to show you. <laughs> My violin is so small that it can fit inside this bag. Can you see that? And this is my violin bow. Do you see that? Now, anybody can play a big violin. Okay, that's not true. Playing the violin takes a lot of effort. And the first thing you have to learn is don't turn it like this. It goes like this. This little thing here, it goes under your chin. Okay, but on little violins, it's kind of challenging. So you have to be able to hold them just right. Now, the strings here are where you put your fingers. And I just like to demonstrate, John, I just like to demonstrate my talent by playing something for you. What do you think? Some of you don't think I can play this, do you? Okay, watch. Wasn't that great? <laughs> There's more. What if there was a real little violin? What if there was a violin so small it couldn't be played? I would play it. You need a very, very small bow, okay? Now pay attention. What do you think? The violin. <clears throat> Actually, though, my point is how amazing it is at the the group of students that we have gathered together in this little school. Um, we now have students in 80 countries, which is really amazing, especially as we, sh we continue to work on a Cellus yearbook, which is going to be a program so students can kind of connect. And yet many students are so talented and so gifted that they have to train, they have to travel, they have to be in special places because they're in entertainment and that, and a lot of them are, are migrating to Acellus because they can do it wherever they need to be. And I think that's really, really exciting. I want to say congratulations to you all. I'm also very proud of the fact that many of our students are very, very gifted in education, and they're achieving outstanding uh, results in their exams, etc. And that's truly exciting. I want to thank uh, Tobias for uh, putting in the plug for the science fair and remind you that it's coming. Uh, it's coming quickly. Um, I had a uh, experience last night where I was talking to one of our students, uh, a young lady, 
uh, one that I entered the science fair last year, and she's going to be entering, I found out again this year. And she informed me that her science fair project is to build a better mousetrap. <laughs> this is a true story. And so we were talking about the better mousetrap, and I realized that that should be something we talk about for just a minute tonight. You know, we, we've spoken about a question, a hypothesis that you make where you, you kind of have an idea of how something's going to work, and then you figure out an experiment to find out. But another way of looking at this that I think is really good is maybe your science fair project is to solve a problem. And in her case, the problem is how to solve a problem of a, a rodent infestation. And uh, mice are cute little creatures, but sometimes they multiply in very large numbers and they can get involved in our food supply. And so we have to kind of control them. And that then becomes a problem that we have have to face. There are many problems that we can think about, many things that we, we could say, I would like to solve this problem or that problem. Interestingly, the scientific method works just as well to solve a rodent problem as it does to solve a problem like satellites in space and some of the other really interesting things we want to do. Uh, Dr. Peget, uh, who is going to be gone for a few weeks and it's going to be a very hard thing to get through without her, but at any rate, she said she would like to know more about waves. Did you hear that? That come through the, the sound system okay? I was really interested in the story that Tobias shared with us about the prism separating the light and the thermometer that was outside the colors was the one that was hottest because there is a invisible light that had more heat energy than any in the visible wavelength. Waves are, are something we all should understand. They are neat. We, we talk about light and we say, well, there's red, there's green, there's blue. But really, light is all exactly the same. It's the same electromagnetic wave going through space, except some has shorter waves and some have longer waves. It's just the frequency of the wave that our eye is able to discern as colors. And there's a lot you can think about in that regard. Uh, if I see something that's green and and they told me when I was young, that color is green. I looked at it and I memorized that very beautiful shade as green. What if the green that I see looks to me like what Matthew thinks is purple? Could be. We don't really know because all we know is that the one we call green, we all call green. But it may look different to us. And it may even look different to different animals. We kind of perceive things differently. Isn't it amazing that the human eye can see reflections of light? And that's where we get vision. If it were not for light, we couldn't have vision. And even with light, if we didn't have these amazing capabilities in our eyes, we wouldn't be able to see it. And it's one thing just to see light, but... Uh, when our eyes were created, they're created with this lens that focuses the light on the retina, which is like a camera. And so the light hits different little spots on the camera, which go through different nerves back to the brain, and we can see a whole image. We can recognize someone. We not only have vision, we have vision with incredible resolution that allows us to do many of the wondrous things we could do. If all of humankind did not have vision, 
Well, then a lot of things that would be difficult uh, or even impossible. On the flip side, though, there are some very special people that for one reason or another do not have vision. Some may have had it when they were younger and lost it. Some may have been born without it. And yet, those people have developed amazing gifts that others with vision don't enjoy. Sometimes, with their hearing, for example, they can hear things and see things through sound that those with vision can't hear and see. Some really amazing people are people that are blind. And they bring some really interesting gifts. I'm thinking of one musician, for example, that's blind. And it's almost like he has a more acute gift because he had to learn to do it without the gift of seeing. Some people don't have the gift of hearing. If we do have either of those gifts, it ought to be something that we're very grateful for. But now connect these dots. So if the wave is one wavelength, we see it as red. If it's another wavelength, we see it as blue. But it's the same thing, just a different frequency. If you slow the wavelength down, slower than light, pretty soon you get radio waves. Slow it down from radio waves, clear down, and you get sound. And sound is a wave. Now, it's a little different kind of wave. It goes through air. But uh, wouldn't it be amazing if the human body could discern between different frequencies of sound like it does light? And yet, it does. Now, get ready for this. It's kind of like the violin, only this is with an invisible violin. Bop. Did you hear that? <clears throat> that was a sound that had a wavelength of 60 cycles per second. And we talk about it in cycles per second because that's an easy way to memorize it. Now, would you like to hear a thousand cycles a second tone? Boop. Now, would you like to hear my 20,000 cycles? <laughs> How about 33,000 cycles a second? Only dogs can hear that, okay? And I can't make it. But now we're talking about sound being waves at one frequency, light being waves at another frequency, a radio signal, waves at another frequency, a microwave, waves at another frequency. In my little hobby area that I call Area 51, where I do my tinkering and things that are too amazing to talk about publicly. <laughs> I have a chart that shows all the wavelengths, all the different frequencies, and it tells what's at each one. And a lot of those different frequencies are assigned to things like the military, the radio for the police, emergency vehicles, the FM stations, the AM state, they all are somewhere on that spectrum of different frequencies, all only divided by the fact that the wavelengths are different. Fascinating, isn't it, that the frequency is different? I think that's neat. I think it's really neat that in white light you have all the colors, they're just all blended together, and when your eye sees it, your eye smushes them all together and you see it as white light. But you put it through a, a prism or a, a fancy prism with a way to measure it. It's called a spectrometer and you can see the different bands. Fascinating, isn't it? Now I want to go just a little bit further with this because it gets real interesting. Have any of you ever seen a fluorescent tube? You know what a fluorescent tube is? It's the way we used to make lights. We still, there's a lot of fluorescent tubes. Fluorescent tubes are quite often four feet long, 
and you put them up in a fixture and they light up. It's interesting to me how a fluorescent light works. A fluorescent light has mercury inside it. Mercury is a metal that uh, is runny at room temperature. It melts at below room temperature, so it's runny just at room temperature. And we put inside these fluorescent lights, we run a voltage through it, and the mercury gets excited, which pumps the electrons away from the, the heart of the atom, from the nucleus. Now, this is something that is so important in nature I want you to try and stay with me for a minute. You all know what a nucleus is. Nucleus is the center of an atom. With a hydrogen atom, it's just a proton, a little chunk that's positive, and it has an electron floating around. If you have two protons, then you need two electrons floating around, and that atom is helium. And you add more electrons and more protons, the center gets bigger, the number of electrons increases in number and it changes. Carbon, oxygen, clear up, you get up something like uranium, which is an enormous atom. With mercury, when you pump it up with electricity, in other words, you run a high voltage through it, the electrons are going around in their, in their little orbits, we call them, and with the new energy, they start going a little faster, which moves them out further from the, from the middle. And they absorb some of the energy in doing that. But they don't like it out there. And so they randomly decay back to their normal orbit. The thing is, before they can go back to the normal orbit, they have to get rid of the energy they absorbed. And that energy is thrown off as light. So think about that. You have the electrons floating around the mercury atom. We turn on the light switch. It puts a voltage through that tube, and the electrons are pushed out into a bigger orbit, and they absorb some of that electricity, and then they randomly fall back down to their normal orbit, and they give off a photon of light. A photon is a tiny little packet of light, and they shoot it out. In the case of mercury, the color of the light is invisible. It's not like the stuff that uh, Tobias was telling us about that warms. It's infrared. It's ultraviolet. It's past the violet into the invisible realm on the other side. So with our eyes, we only see certain colors, and if it's too slow or too fast a wavelength, it disappears to our eyes. Mercury makes a color of light that has too short of a wavelength for us to be able to see it. And so we put fluorescent tubes up and, and there's no light. We can't see the, the bulk of the light that comes out of the mercury. So what good would it do to have a mercury light? And the answer is kind of clever. And you'll see I'm trying to make a point here. We put a coating on the inside of the tube, and as the ultraviolet hits that coating, it causes it to fluoresce. That's why we call it fluorescent lights. And the material that we put on there has to be a fluorescent material, and you can get materials so that when UV light hits them, they fluoresce in different colors. It turns out, though, that we want white light. So they put different materials in there, just the right amount to give the right warmth of light that they want. And that's how we get the colors. Now, my point is, when you look at a fluorescent tube through a prism, you don't see all of the colors. You just see a little line of color here, a little line of color here, a little line of color there. And the lines you see are depending on which coatings they put inside the tube. Another interesting thing, did you know that ultraviolet light, especially shortwave ultraviolet, 
can damage your eyes. It can even blind you. Fluorescent bulbs could be kind of dangerous. In fact, <laughs> we use ultraviolet lights to kill bacteria because it's a germicidal effect and it can burn your skin, it can burn your eyes. So why don't fluorescent bulbs hurt our eyes? And the answer is that very short wave of light, the light we can't see, will not go through glass. Remember the, the glasses the guy was wearing in Tobias's picture, that was infrared, the light block, I mean the glass blocked, glass blocks shortwave ultraviolet light. And so we can have those tubes and all of the dangerous waves stay inside. They make a light bulb, looks like just a fluorescent bulb except it's clear. There's no coating on the inside. And instead of making it out of glass, they make it out of quartz. In fact, quartz is light glass, so they call it quartz glass. But quartz glass will allow waves to go right through it. Are you with me? Am I going too fast? And so then those are the bulbs that are used for, for germicidal. I, I realize that I'm getting deep into this, this waves thing, but there's a lot we really ought to know about waves. And there's been a lot of things in my personal experience where an understanding of waves have been very, very valuable to me. When I was young, I became interested in ham radio. Uh, ham radio is uh, a wonderful hobby where you can get a radio and you can talk to strangers around the world. And it really is, is kind of fun because when you uh, set up a little radio in your house and you put up a ham radio antenna, you can transmit on different bands or different frequencies and some of the frequencies go up into the atmosphere and they hit the upper atmosphere and they reflect back down. And they can reflect clear around the earth. So I'd turn on my ham radio and I would talk to Europe, I'd talk to Japan, I'd talk to Australia because the waves would bounce around. And an interesting thing is depending on the, the sunspots, the solar radiation coming to the earth would determine how well ham radio waves would reflect. And so I'd come home after school and turn on my radio, and sometimes I'd hear all of this noise, all of these different people talking, and I'd tune in where they were, and it'd all be in Peru. And then the next day I'd tune in, and there was nobody. And then it'd be Israel. And then it'd be Africa. And the skip would change depending on the upper atmosphere. And that made it really fun to be a ham radio operator. In, in ham language, the first thing you got to learn is CQ. Letter C and the letter Q. CQ. CQ. I, CQ. So you pick up your microphone and you say CQ, 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 CQ. That means I'm seeking you. <laughs> and and where's that come from? Well, ham radio started out with Morse code. And it's still done a lot with Morse code. So if you just want to talk to somebody, you get on your ham radio, you go CQ, 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 and in Morse code that's da 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 and you sit and send that for about two or three minutes. And someone tuning through might hear you and say, oh, there's some guy want, or girl that wants to talk. Thought, well, maybe it's Peugeot. And so then you say over and you listen. And if you're doing it more, more scud, they come back, da, 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 da. But if you're doing microphone, then they come back and they say, hi, uh, I'm so blow from somewhere and I'm doing this. And, and you have these little talks and you get hooked up. And then when you get to be friends, and you know, they always say about the same things. They, they tell you how good your signal is. 
You know, well, I'm up here in the United States. It's good to hear from you down in Australia. I'm reading you at, at a five, which means a real good signal. Or I'm getting you about a one, one and a half. It's a pretty shaky signal. And then you get their address, and you send them a URL card. And this card has your call letters on it, and it's your way of proving that you talk to each other, and you send them through the mail, and you put them up on your wall. And you get all these cards from all over the world, and that's what hams do. They also are very valuable when we need to have emergency communications, and it's, it's something that's really a lot of fun. Well, I, uh, I got very, very interested in ham radio and had some, some really wonderful experiences. First thing you got to do, though, you have to get a radio, and then you have to have an antenna. And unlike a little walkie-talkie that will only go a blocky, You've got to have an outside antenna. And if you can run an outside antenna, you have to run a coax cable to carry your signal outside. And then you need an antenna. Well, my first antenna was called a dipole. And a dipole antenna is a piece of wire hooked to the coax in the middle and another piece of wire going from that tree to your house or wherever you have a place to put it. And with a dipole antenna, I could talk maybe a state away. In other words, maybe I'd talk New Mexico or Texas or something like that. But if you want to talk around the world, needed a better antenna. So I found a guy that was selling a tower. And his tower was really, really interesting because if I could get my parents to let me put this out behind our house, and you tie it with guy wires so it won't blow over in the wind. And on top, it has a directional antenna. Looks like a TV antenna, only bigger, a lot bigger. And when I was ready to talk, the higher the antenna, the better I could talk to a long ways away. So I go outside, and I'd start, oh, someone put it up. That is actually my antenna. <laughs> we got to be careful. And that is me. <laughs> And, you can, and that's the house I grew up in. Oh, look, I was really handsome back then. Yeah, well, there it is. So that is my, my youth home, and that is my ham radio antenna. And boy, I'd like to know who found that. <clears throat> We've got to be careful. But that antenna had a crank on it, and I could crank it up, and it'd go three times the size. Now, why didn't I keep it cranked up all the time? Because if there was a strong wind, it would blow it over. So I'd have to crank it down when I was through. But with that antenna, it had a rotor on it so I could point it any direction I wanted to. So I'd go point it around. And it was a tri-bander for you ham guys. So work on three different frequencies. And I talked to people all over the world. And it was really, really interesting. Now you're saying, well, why is he going on and on and on about that? I learned so many neat things from ham radio that I had to learn to make it work. I learned about matching impedance and just a lot of things that are going to be covered in STEM 3 that uh, really empower you to do things. So here's the other question I want to ask tonight. It is so fun to go on the ham radio and say CQ, 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 and see who you're going to get, and you meet a brand new friend. And it's even fun when the friend is close. Once I got a guy just about five blocks from my house, oh, you got a good signal. <laughs> and then I got a lot of wonderful contacts around the United States, on the East Coast, the West Coast, a lot of guys from California were on, and, uh, and around the world. But today, ham radio is not as popular as it was, but the idea is so much fun. So what I'm thinking about doing is why can't we make a ham radio thing in a solace? And so you could go out and say CQ, 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 and see who you'd find. I think it'd be a lot of fun. If you like that idea, shoot me a little note and say, I like the Acellus ham radio idea because I think we could build that into our new yearbook project. Wouldn't that be fun?
which, by the way, we're, we are working on. All right? Do any of you that are here have any questions about this that you want to ask or anything about waves you want to share? Nobody here is awake. <laughs> okay. I, I just have to tell everybody out there that uh, we're going through a lot of uh, excitement here in Kansas City this week. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever heard about the Super Bowl. <laughs> but today in Kansas City, we had a million people at the Chiefs Super Bowl parade. And, uh, yep, we're right here. Kansas City is uh, right in the heart of the United States, just right in the middle. So we're as close to everybody as we can be. And uh, this year, um, the local football team was able to get into the Super Bowl, and, and then they scared us. They got 10 behind. They ran out of time. Six minutes, they were 10 to 20, and they won. And they made a, a tremendous effort, and we're, we're really proud of them. Kansas City is a, is a wonderful place. Uh, I chose this as my hometown a long time ago. Uh, I wasn't born here, but I consider myself to be native. But the thing that I love about Kansas City is it's a place that has some of the most wonderful, caring people in the world. And so much of what we're doing with the Cellus is only possible because of the amazing, amazing people that, that are here. And in that regard, tonight I have some news. Um, this week, the International Academy of Science had a big acquisition. Uh, next door to us is a hotel called the Comfort Inn. On one side we have the Hilton Garden Inn, and on the other side we have the Comfort Inn, and the Academy just bought the Comfort Inn. And we are now going to uh, re-outfit it to become the new dormitories for our students that are coming from all over. And some of you that are graduating from Cells Academy are pretty interested in the college opportunities here, but some of you, most of you, are from out of town. So I want you to know we bought that for you. And uh, we now have how many graduates? 359 Acellus Academy graduates, which uh, every one of them are, are treasures. And uh, we want to do everything we can to help you to go forward in your careers. Some of you, we're going to use those high school diplomas to get jobs, better jobs than you could get without a high school diploma, because people know you can do more because of the effort you put in, in learning and studying. Some of you are going to want to go on to college. And it's interesting because when you invest in education, you're actually increasing what you can do in life, which makes you more valuable to an employer. And so that's, that's pretty neat. Uh, we have a school, in fact, Acela started out as a university. Uh, a university of science. And this university was founded in 1985, so we're 35 years old now. And the idea was that this would be a school where we don't teach so much theory, but we actually teach practical science for people that want to have careers in applied science, in, in doing stuff like science projects, etc. It's it's interesting that Acellus, which is our learning system for K through 12, started out as a university project for our students. This is the kind of projects we do. And uh, I would say that the students that worked on Acellus had a pretty successful project because now this thing has grown just enormous. But um, the Academy of Science 
is uh, a little bit different kind of philosophy of a school. And uh, it's certainly not for everyone, but it provides a very interesting niche for certain people. And if you happen to be one of these certain people, then you need to pay attention for just a minute so that you'll hear about this. Uh, there are two things about uh, the Institute of Science and Technology, which is our university, that you ought to be aware of. First of all, we do applied science. Uh, there are so many wonderful universities in this nation and around the world that teach traditional science theory and, and things of that sort, and they give uh, PhDs, which are degrees in a very narrow specific area. What we wanted to do was to give degrees in a very broad area, in an applied area. And, and our great founders, which were some really wonderful international scientists that put the school together, saw a real need because there are not so many people that do advanced degrees in these really diverse technical areas. So we give a doctor of research degree and a doctor of science degree, and they're very, very applied. We're now uh, uh, having a expansion in our program for students that want to get into distance education. What we're doing with Acellus is kind of revolutionary. We have 5,000 schools that are using it, and it's growing very fast. And there are a lot of schools that are trying to find people that know how to do this so they can hire them. So since we're kind of experts in this, we're expanding our program to train people that want to go into the science of, of distance learning, how to help students be more successful in high school, elementary school, middle school through technologies like Acellus. So all kinds of science things are what we do here. And we do have openings for students who want to get involved in those areas. Yes, you do need to graduate. Uh, but um, we do have wonderful scholarships for people that do. And we do have a special uh, preference for students that graduate from Sells Academy because we know you have a very good education. So that's something to keep up, keep in mind. But there's something else that uh, uh, you should consider when you're, you're choosing the place to go to school. Um, there's a lot of different points of view and philosophies about science and religion and living and all of those kinds of things. And a lot of the universities today have taken a bent towards a very liberal point of view. And we felt like we wanted to serve the market or the community of people that are more conservative, that have more conservative values. And so that's the kind of school that we built. Um, another way of saying that, um, the, we, we have all kinds here, believe me. We, we are not all very conservative, are we guys? We have a lot of different points of view. But uh, we have a, a lot of people here on our faculty and our student body that really love our country. And you know, that's certainly one of the things about me. I, uh, I've seen the world. I've had a chance to travel all around it, literally around it. And uh, every time I come back to America, I just, I love this country. I, I love how it was founded. I love what it's doing. I think that uh, I was very, very fortunate that my forefathers five generations ago migrated to this country and uh, have given me this opportunity. And so uh, when, when people ask me about it, you know, I, I respect everybody's right to think what they want to, but I'm trying to build a, uh, a university environment for people that want to have uh, what some people might consider to be old-fashioned conservative views. 
And to me, they're not old-fashioned. They're good values, and they're the kind of values that help us to really do things. Uh, I believe that uh, there, there are a lot of people that would do well to stop and remember what life's all about and, and maybe get a little bit out of the rat race and focused a little more on, on the things that really, really matter in life. Um, I have actually been criticized for not trying harder to make money. And I haven't tried very hard to make money. Um, I, I have to confess, very, very early in my career, in my early 20s, I thought that was pretty important. And I'd been raised in a family where we didn't have a lot of money. And I knew what it was like to go without. And I said, I'm never going to do that again. But then, somewhere along the way, I realized that that's not where I found happiness. And so, uh, these good, old-fashioned values, I, I find happiness through relationships, through my friends, through my friendships, doing things to make a difference. And um, we've never graduated two people that were the same. We, we seem to attract individuals. And they come with opinions and personalities and they leave with them, and that's fine, and, and we encourage that. On the other hand, it seems like a lot of our graduates leave caring more about people than, than they came with. And I like that. That's kind of one of my focuses. Uh, we're, we're trying to empower them with the educational tools to, like I like, I'm fond of saying, to achieve their life's mission. And we don't try to tell them what their life's mission is. That's not our place. But Bill Lear, my mentor, instilled deep in me that if they don't figure out what their mission is, they're not going to achieve it. So we try to get them to take a few minutes out of their education time to figure out what it is they want to do in their lives. What do they want to accomplish? What do they want to achieve? And for those of you that are, are still in high school or middle school or even elementary school, if you could only realize how valuable the knowledge you're putting into your head is on the future of your life, whatever goals or missions you set, you would work much harder, believe me. We try to, to put the power in a cellist so you can learn and you can learn better than you could anywhere else. That's our goal. But hopefully we're also learning to care. And that's one of the, the goals that I have of these meetings. Uh, on Wednesday nights, my message is the scientific method empowers people to do just about anything else they want in their life. And you ought to learn it. You know, I'll use it. Second of all, your education is a treasure. Putting knowledge inside your brain is like putting gold in the bank, literally. And the stuff you're learning, if you really apply yourself, it could be worth more than a million dollars during your lifetime. So investing in your knowledge and grabbing this opportunity to learn is really wonderful. And then the third thing that I try to do is to inspire us to realize that we are all on this earth together as one giant family and we really ought to take time to appreciate and care about each other. And if I can just help people realize that that's where happiness is hiding, then a lot of us would remake difference. I, I enjoy reading the messages that you send in to me. And last week, uh, 
I was reading the messages, and one of you that may be listening tonight wrote me a thing and said, you know, when I started uh, attending our Wednesday night classes, I had some very, very different opinions than you do about life. And as I've listened to you week after week, I've started to change my opinions, and I think I'm happier. I can't tell you how happy that made me. I felt like, yes, that's what it's all about. Uh, whether you're happy or whether you're sad isn't determined by whether you've got it easier or hard in life. Rather, it's a choice. So choose to be happy. And you'll be happy. Thank you. Good night. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.